Welcome back to Uncorked Monthly. This is Mark Allen Powers, your chief and editor. And today, I'm privileged to be able to interview Kevin Willenborg, winemaker at Villa Robles Vineyards and Winery. I really love the versatile experience that Kevin brings. He has over 35 years of extensive experience working across key regions such as Bordeaux, Napa Valley, Sonoma, and many others. He's a graduate of University of California, Davis, and his fast-paced career all started with an internship at Chateau Petrus in the mid-80s. Welcome to Uncorked Monthly, Kevin. Hey, good. Great uh, great to be here. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak with you, Mark. My pleasure. What a background you have. Um, you know, before we dive into your wine world experience, which is incredibly impressive, and, and I love the fact that you have such experience across all these regions, so I'm going to have a lot of questions about that. But I, I always like to start the show off when I get to know somebody. Walk everybody, you know, what was it like growing up as Kevin? Where did you grow up? What was your family like as a child? What was that experience like? Yeah, well, um, you know, we t- my dad was, uh, uh, he was in the Navy when I was born. And uh, so I have uh, three other siblings. Uh, it's kind of uh, funny. Uh, we traveled quite a bit in my early years. Uh, my brother and I were born out on Midway Island when he was stationed uh, out there, out in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, spent some time out there, um, uh, and he was based in Hawaii for a bit. My little brother uh, was born two years later in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, so I, I guess some of my first recollections of, of early childhood might be out there. And then, you know, eventually we settled uh, into California. I grew up in Stockton, uh, California, in the middle of the, the Central Valley. And, okay. uh, 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 you know, graduated from high school there and um, you know moved on to to college not too far uh, up the road so I went to UC Davis uh, yeah. um, uh, you know originally I was looking Davis UC Berkeley uh, originally what attracted me going there was the engineering program uh, uh, math and sciences were you know areas that um, I, I was pretty well predisposed towards and uh, so it just seemed like a natural fit of course uh, does anybody really know what they want to do when they're uh, when they graduate from high school and and uh, right. pick their career path uh, so it started off at UC Davis and um, uh, it didn't take long until uh, I went through my freshman year taking a lot of the sciences getting that out of the way uh, then I ran across a guy um, uh, on my dorm floor, he was a junior who had transferred up from UC San Diego specifically for the winemaking program at UC Davis, and uh, that was news to me. I didn't didn't realize that they uh, they had such a program, and uh, his dad worked for a distributor. He would bring back wines uh, post-holidays, and, you know, we'd have little wine tastings and things of that, and he encouraged me to take an introductory winemaking course, which you can do, so I did. Uh, I loved it. Um, you know, what attracted me to the, to the field was the fact that, you know, here, here's something that you, I could integrate my science skills, uh, as well as, you know, you're making a product and that product is very challenging. Every year is a different year, a different vintage. It's just kind of an open 
and a constant experimental project from one year to another. And I thought that was pretty exciting and pretty, um, you know, engaging for me. So I, I, I uh, changed my major. Um, I never looked back and just kind of went full bore into it. And I uh, can't say I've regretted that decision. Well, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I, uh, what, a, what a turning point in your life, because that was going to be one of my questions, is, you know, how, what, what, what inspired you or got you into it? So Yeah, you, well, you, and, and you getting... captured that. And, yeah, no, getting back to that point, and I'll, um, just, just real quickly, you know, when I grew up as a kid also, I had a really good friend of mine, junior high school into high school, and he, his family, they're all pretty bright. His brothers and sisters, most of them were a half a generation older. Uh, his, uh, one of his older brothers, um, he would come visit, and he'd, we'd play basketball together. Uh, he went to UC Berkeley, was an accomplished lawyer, and, you know, he's kind of somewhat of a mentor, and he said, you know, if I had to do it all over, I'd like to do something um, with my hands and create something. And that always just resonated with me. It's, it's um, you know, I, I think we... I think we want to get more tangibly oriented uh, into the world. Our world is becoming more specialized. It's very fast-paced. We get so um, focused into various little uh, specialty fields, uh, and it goes so fast. And we sometimes get a little disconnected to, um, you know, our environment, the land, uh, you know, what what uh, the old world things the traditions, things that used to be, things of that nature. And I think all of that comes into play in winemaking. And I think it opens up uh, an area that uh, a lot of people can identify with and take a little bit of break, um, take a sip back to the old world uh, and, uh, you know, just relax, have some, have a good meal, have a good bottle of wine and just um, uh, slow down a little bit in life. I like your uh, I like your approach and the way you think. <laughs> so you know, I wanted, wanted to bring up something. I I, I really uh, you know, as I as I started doing some research on you, I you know one of the things that I noticed in your bio, uh, which I absolutely love, it says, you know, you mentioned in your bio that the role of the winemaker is to respectfully steward this life with care and attention to detail. And I've learned uh, through my research that you're, you're, you're a guy that's known for great attention to detail. I mean, you look like, you, it's like you're, you're, you're so passionate about the vines and the process in which it goes from ground to, you know, to, the, to the process to the glass. So all the way through that, how it expresses itself through the potential of the grape. How far our audience understand what that really means for the wine that they're enjoying um, from uh, Vino Robles? Well, yeah, no, I, I, I truly believe that the, the, the wine starts uh, in the vineyards. Um, and, you know, when I first came into this industry, there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of facts and fiction. And, you know, as a scientist, you kind of get to the, you try and sort out what's, what works, what doesn't work. And then, you know, once you get this, you know, you start tasting a few good bottles of wine you wonder how how did they get this and you know all the roads lead you back into the vineyards um and it starts on you know how you plant the vineyards the you know the varieties that you put the soil conditions where they are um you know and uh just trying to balance the vines and trying to put the right varieties in the right place there's 
you know, you start getting into, as you get more and more into it, you get into clones, you get into root stocks that you plant these specific uh, Cabernet varieties that may be uh, different clones of Cabernet. You may put them on different root stock and you always have to pay attention to the soil condition. Uh, uh, you know, the terroir, I, I, I do believe uh, in the French term terroir um, in which it incorporates to me, you know, the, the soil conditions, the topography, the geology, um, the climate, all of those factors that kind of uh, make one area um, unique to another. Um, right. And you see, you, you see it all in, in, in one vineyard site alone. You can uh, go from one 10-acre block or a five-acre block to another five-acre block, and you may have a different uh, soil conditions or slightly different terroir uh, just just one place to another. So it starts in the vineyard. Um, okay. And I've, I've always felt that uh, you have to look at the conditions you're in, try to balance the vine appropriately, um, get the right canopy on it, uh, get right sun exposure into the fruiting zone, irrigation, how much you really use. It's all very, very site-specific. Um, uh, you, you do those things. That's... Um, you want to work with the vine to get it to ripen the flavors and the textures and the skins for the reds. Uh, you want to get that to do that for you uh, before you pick the grapes uh, because, you know, all your substrate is, is right there in the grapes. Now, you know, from the winemaking part of it, once you, once you have that, there's still various things you can do, um, but it, you need those substrates. It's, it's, um, like when you go to a great restaurant, um, it's probably no secret to any great chef out there. They understand where they get their good ingredients. Um, you know, I mean, that's why when you follow a recipe, it, it never turns out like the restaurants. Well, they're, they know where to get the best, you know, cuts of meat, where to get their best locally grown uh, produce. And, and all these little elements just make a big difference in the, in the final uh, dish. So, um, uh, again, the, the vineyards, um, getting the grapes, getting the grape vines uh, to produce those richer, riper flavors, um, that is, that is, those are your raw substrate. And then from there, yeah, you can still screw it up um, cooking uh, yeah. or you can hand certain things uh, in your, how you kind of put things together. But you really need that substrate. Yeah, and I was, you know, it brings up another good question, I think, is, um, you know, like anything in life, you know, we as humans can make mistakes from time to time. What was your most epic one you've ever made in your winemaking career thus far, if you've even had one? And if you're, if you're willing to share. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, probably I learned a long time ago um, uh, picking decisions. Um, uh, where I've taken, I, you know, you get very, you know, uh, you get very busy during the time of harvest it's like all your productions coming in uh one time a year so you're racing out to the vineyards all the time kind of following up on uh how the vines are developing when you're going to pick uh and then trying to get back to the winery following up things that are already in the winery some of the processing uh it's it's often very challenging trying to manage your time being in two places at once um you know it, it uh so there's been one or two times where I've relied on 
some picking decisions that uh, I didn't get out to the vineyard to taste the fruit be- prior to picking. And in both instances, I think I picked myself. Um, you know, you just, uh, it, it just, things didn't, uh, you know, a vineyard person thought that, you know, the flavors were there. You, you, you need to pick these. They're going to be over the hill. Uh, the way they looked at it was completely different how I looked at it. Um, and, I, you know, I just vowed I'd never really do that again. So every, every, every harvest, I make the, the, the effort, um, no matter how busy it is, that every picking decision, I go see the grapes before we pick them. Um, and make that decision and want to be a part of that. Excellent. So that's, that's a great lesson learned. That's a best practice, which leads into my next question. So thank you for sharing, Abby. Um, you know, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with uh, going through life and stumbling a couple times or learning a valuable lesson like that in order to achieve, you know, a greater product output. So cheers to yeah. you, my friend, for recognizing that and sharing that with us. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's... We all make mistakes, and obviously that's how we learn. I mean, some of the best experiments are failed experiments, and um, exactly. but we learn things. We learn from those. So um, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's all a learning curve. But that that's one that just is, was prevalent and comes to my mind. Fantastic. No, I thank you. You know, with with all the experience that you have across the different respective regions out there, what are some of the best practices that you've learned? and actually apply from your experiences working across these key regions, such as Bordeaux versus Napa versus Sonoma, et cetera. What, what are some of those best practices, Kevin? Well, I, you know, the, you know, there's the best practice, I would say, with, with any given area that you're in, um, it's, it's different one region to another. So you always have to, um, again, I, I say balance the vine, and that's a, that, that means something different for every place um just to give you an example uh uh when uh when in when i was in san Inez valley uh the climate was a little cooler um uh there than let's just say uh paso or napa valley the daytime highs would not get as as hot um so with cabernet sauvignon uh when you're growing it there uh, you don't have the incidence of sunburn. Um, you would probably open up the canopies, what I found, a little bit more, get a little bit more aggressive light exposure, take a few more leaves around the fruiting zone. Um, uh, just make sure you get very good sun exposure uh, into the canopy and uh, you have the radiant um, uh, sunlight working for you, creating more heat on those berries and just kind of driving off more of the the pyrazine, the vegetative component of the variety, and just ripening more of the riper fruit flavors. Now, if I did the same thing in Paso uh, Robles or uh, up in Napa Valley, where the daytime high uh, is more sustained uh, between 2 and 4 o'clock, you typically would get sunburn if you overexpose uh, that fruit, even on Cabernet Sauvignon. So you have to leave uh, a few more leaves um uh, in the afternoon sun, so you don't uh, you don't scorch the skins of of the, the grapes. If you do that, that damages the skins, then they can't produce the 
the flavor and the color that you want, um, and then the yeah. textures as, as well. So, so it's um, it, it's it's different. Um, in Bordeaux, um, you know, obviously it rains uh, more prevalently throughout the year than most the regions in California that I've worked. Um, it's it's relatively a dry summer in California, so the mold and mildew pressures in California are are there's there's still some but they're nothing like what they get in those regions uh, where it typically rains throughout the summer uh, so opening up the canopies there are very uh, 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 you know you have to do that just for to allow airflow so you don't get more mold and mildew pressures um, and it just uh, so it's it's uh, it's it's different how you go about it well, it's definitely. I could. I could. I think our audience can definitely tell by listening to you describe this that there's there's a true art and a science. There's a lot of complexities, a lot of things that are just completely outside of uh, our control as humans and trying to, to to nurture this. But I can only imagine that the relationship you must have with the the, the individuals that are behind the scenes in the vineyard as well, the workers out there. I can only imagine you have you guys have to have this trust, this bond. To, 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 to get what the, you know to, to achieve the results that you're looking for in the final product right yeah no it's you're right it is it, it is a team because you have to rely on uh, many different people uh, in the vineyard I have a, my seller master I, I rely on him a lot we go over a lot of stuff um, you know uh, 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 our managing partner at Vino Robles uh, Hans Nikel he's got an expression. Uh, that I truly believe in. Uh, uh, miscommunication is the most common form of communication. So mm. what, what I find is um, I don't mind going and talking to people, and it's probably they, they may get annoyed if I repeat myself two or three times, um, but I just um, I, 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 I do that often enough because I figure for me sometimes I need to hear something more than once. Uh, and uh, just before it really sinks in. So I, just translating that message and just spending some time with people, make sure we're all tracking down the same path is uh, that communication is very critical. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. And you know, I, I did some research on Hans as well. I mean, sounds like an amazing guy, lots of experience. Uh, Zurich, uh, Switzerland, I think he was born or raised in or grew up in at least. Um, yep. And then, and, and then you, you guys, you know, he, he had this vision, um, which is obviously on, on your homepage even, but his vision, I think, was, uh, if I read on the website, uh, let me go back to it here, European heritage and American opportunity. With that being said, with all the European uh, consumers that may, you know, experience Vino Robles wine uh, and, and versus the American cons wine consumers, do do if you guys had any feedback about that from these consumers and say, wow, these wines, you know, they definitely represent, you know, a, a, a true European heritage, but has the, you know, the, the I guess the the, the power punch of an American wine and the, the beauty that American uh, culture has in their wines. Any any thought or yeah. comment around that? 
Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's, yeah, you, you highlighted something. We also have another expression, um, European inspiration, California character. So, um, yeah. you know, what we're, what we're trying to do is, is, um, you know, I've worked in Europe a little bit in Bordeaux, and I think I understand a bit where our ownership comes from, from the old world. There's so much tradition that is steeped in the old world, and something I picked up on when I, uh, in turn, um, uh, with Jean-Claude Barraway at Chateau Petrus, there was, you know, there's, yeah. and, and, and as a French enologist put it, Emile Peineau, um, tradition is the result of many successful experimentations. They've been doing this for hundreds of years, and there's certain things that they have in tradition that many people don't even realize why they do it. They just do it because it seems to work um, uh, after, you know, many, many years. And so uh, what I learned there is is there are certain traditions and they work. And then you start, uh, you you carry them on and you start learning why they work. Um, And uh, you look at the palates more so in in Europe and they're used to drinking older wines and wines that have been aged for periods of time. And uh, so their palates have been, um, have grown accustomed to those sorts of things. America, we tend to have, you know, uh, we have a kind of a, a an evolving palette, I think, uh, and and the wine industry has changed too. We're we're not in Europe, um, uh, for one thing, in California. We have a different um, growing conditions, and our fruit profile tends to be uh, very expressive with the with the fruit tones, um, and so you want to capture that here, um, uh, and. And uh, those sorts of things not only appeal to the the American palate, but I think as the Europeans uh, get uh, wind of some of these products coming from, uh, say, some of the Vienna Robles wines uh, from here uh, in our estate vineyards here in Paso Robles, uh, they they start to see a richer, riper flavor than what they ordinarily would see from some of the vineyards uh, in, uh, in Europe. But I think what we're trying to interweave with all of this is this this balance, this elegance, and that is something that comes from uh, that starts again back into the vineyard and balancing the vine to get that um, evenness of ripeness and that uh, that richness of, of texture, um, and uh, you know encapsulating that and you know incorporating both um, old world and new world winemaking techniques. And our style of winemaking um, to try and integrate um, that balance of what we see. So, again, we realize uh, we're in Paso Robles. It's very, uh, it's a very young um, appellation and wine region. But there's this, you know, hallmark uh, expressive bold fruit and some rich, just very soft textured tannins that come through. And I think that's a, a very appealing combination. Um, to both old world and new world wine drinkers. Yeah. Well, you know, on that note, I mean, what what is one aspect of your job as a winemaker, which is an actually pretty darn cool title to have, by the way. And, you know, it has so, so much clout in the front end and romance to the consumer, but yet so much complexity and science and, you know, just a lot of just things that go on in the lab and out in the vineyard that just people just don't understand and, and the cellar. But, what is one of the aspects of your job that, you know, the average wine consumer that just likes wine, they don't know a lot about wine, might be surprised about? Hmm. Oh. Huh. 
I, I, boy, uh, you know, I don't maybe know where to begin. <laughs> uh, let me, maybe. let me, uh, I, I would that say one. that, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of science that goes on, on into it, but really, uh, we're not making, we're not making wine by the numbers. We're still making wines by taste. Um, so a lot of it is, um, it's still sensory, you know, smell, taste, um, even visuals and, and textures um, and, and the observation. So the human element is very, very big part of that, despite all the science and research that we do. I mean, I can look at various things. I can dissect a wine. I can run analysis. I can run, uh, I can run phenolic analysis and see what uh, the color I'm getting, the, the tannins, the tannin fractions, the textures, and all these sorts of things that are kind of uh, benchmarks, as well as the sugar readings, the acids, all of that sort of stuff. It doesn't really mean much to anybody. Um, uh, the point is, is how it does fit together. And I, I think the human element, uh, if I was going to say any one thing, is still the biggest factor. Our nose uh, can still pick out uh, aromatics, thresholds of aromatics that are so minute that uh, we have a hard time uh, dissecting them or, or even registering them on some of our most sensitive analytical instruments. So, you know, the human element is a very key part of all of this, um, the, despite all the science that we apply uh, to this. Wow, excellent. So, no, that, that's interesting to hear and exciting to hear because I definitely believe in the sensory experience. Um, and I think we do get... You know, I think the majority of people out there, when they're looking at wine, tasting wine, um, you know, they're they're trying their their best to try to understand what the aromas mean, what the taste means, how does it impact their palate, and what is what does the palate really mean, and how do you evolve that palate? And yeah, you I know, and and, and here, here here's that. something else I would add. Um, you know, with that, uh, just for all the consumers out there, you know, it it, it just. Um, I think people are getting better and better at this, just kind of uh, just dissecting a wine for themselves. And, you know, what does it smell like? What does it taste like to you? Um, you know, what are the textures? What is your experience? Don't, you know, uh, look at that. There are no right or wrong answers. And, in, in, uh, you know, when you're tasting a wine, if you think it tastes like this or if you think uh, it smells like that, uh, you know, we come up with descriptors all the time. We put them on our fact sheets. We, uh, we'll, um, you know, we talk in terms when we do tastings, things of that nature. But it's not, these are not absolutes. These are just impressions that we put down. If, if I get, you know, blueberries and, and smelling a wine and somebody says, no, I get raspberries, nobody's right or wrong. Um, I, I would, I would encourage anybody out there, um, you know, tasting wine, uh, you know, you don't have to be a winemaker. Your palate is just as good. Uh, you come up with what you like, uh, know what you like. If you come up with descriptors, sometimes, um, you know, can help you remember what something tastes like, which is the reason why we kind of put down descriptors. You don't have to do that. But the main thing is just uh, yeah. is, is enjoy the wine, trust your own sensory uh, and uh, don't rely on others uh, necessarily all the time. Uh, if you like a critic or so that you seem to identify with their palate uh, and uh, can kind of trust their assessments, I'd say that's great, but always just evaluate it for yourself. Yeah, definitely. What, what do you think of 
you know, these consumer wine wine apps. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Quinny uh, does wine reviews. We actually use them on Encore Monthly, which is why I ask. But um, they're on a true point system of zero to 100 and believe in the global palate that the consumer's, um, you know, opinion and their and how they rate and review wine matters. I'm interested in hearing what the industry folks uh, like yourself think about a platform like that. And if that's, yeah, that's the question, I guess. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, no, I I really don't. I'll, I'll be quite frank. I don't spend a, a lot of time, you know, you know, searching reviews uh, and and things of that nature. I, I'm more interested in kind of uh, looking at something in front of me and evaluating it for myself. Uh, you know, that being said, I, I I think the purpose of you know some of these you know apps and some of these reviews might might help you kind of understand uh, when you're when you're looking for wines um, but uh, uh, you know I I would say just kind of venture out a little bit more and try other things that uh, that sometimes you don't even see um, uh, out there um, so yeah 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 I mean that's, I think that's a great response honestly I mean People ask me all the time, you know, with all these interviews I do and the, the amount of wine that I get to enjoy and, you know, try. I mean, it's what's my favorite bottle of wine? And I tell them, it's an opened one. <laughs> it's my favorite yeah, bottle of wine. Yeah, there you go. An open one because it's a new experience. It's, it's part of the journey, right? It's, it's how you discover right. your path. Yeah, that's right. And if you find a producer that you like, um, you know, hopefully... Um, uh, you know, look, look at what they're doing, look who's making their wine, look who's, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, see if they're, they're still there, they're still consistent. You know, what I'm trying to do is, is just every bottle we do, every year we go through, there's going to be some vintage variation, but I'm looking to make a certain style and consistency to the product. That way, when you buy our you know, our 2012 Cabernet Sauvignon, you're going to see a certain style, but uh, when you get to the 13, you may see a vintage change, and, um, you know, there may be more phenolics in the 13 than there was in the 12, but you're going to find this certain style where there's this expressive fruit and that you're going to have this um, roundness of, of texture. Look how even the mouthfeel, and that's very important to me. Um, so all of the wines that I'm trying to make, I'm trying to uh, just get that expressive fruit that the vineyard produces, but also just get the um, the physiologically ripe tannins and textures in the grape, the grape skins, extract that and find a nice balance where it's very even throughout the palate. Um, so if, if once you find that, you know, producer that that works well for you. Um, you know, hopefully they stay consistent with that style and just um, uh, you know uh, just keep coming back to that if you if you find something you like. Definitely. Well, you know, that's a, a great segue too into our next topic here. Um, you know, let's get into the wines. Uh, we we are going to do something new here on the show today and. Uh, Typically, you know, we, we've already conducted the new bottle experience, but I've never really just opened up a bottle and walked through, okay. <laughs> walked through the experience with the winemaker. So I'm, I'm, I've been excited about this. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up yesterday, and I got thinking about. It. I was like, you know what? Why not? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, yeah, no. I, I know uh, you you may have gone through a couple bottles of our wine and stuff, and I think uh, what you have in front of you. Um, 
is uh, if I'm not is our our 2012 signature uh, red wine that we produce. Is that right, Mark? That is correct. Yep. It's the uh, yep correct. Okay. Okay. So this is this is a wine we only uh, do a couple hundred cases a year. Uh, it's very limited production wine. Uh, we did okay. 560 cases out of 2012, and signature is um, is uh, it's it's a hallmark wine that we put together. It's kind of a winemaker's blend to capture the vintage. What does well uh, in our estate vineyards, and what uh, does well that vintage uh, proportionally wise. And what we keep coming up with are uh, these varieties that nobody would even think of putting together. Um, this blend is actually 80% Petite Verdot, which uh, is uh, typically been uh, relegated to a blending grape, um, particularly up in, in, in Napa Valley and in Bordeaux, uh, where you might see maybe 4 or 5% in a blend. Uh, in a Bordeaux blend, um, and, and usually not much more than that for good reason, because the tannins can be uh, overtly very astringent, uh, dry, and very aggressive. Uh, and right. you get to a certain percentage, uh, 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 more in a blend, more than 4 or 5%, sometimes it could be overpowering, uh, and it's just too uh. dry and astringent. Same with the tea oh. Syrah. Uh, it's a variety that grows ubiquitously well, um, throughout California, but it has the one thing it can have too much of uh, is too much dry astringent tannin. So here you have two wines that potentially are going to be very dry and astringent. Why would you put these things together? Um, uh, and and let me tell you, I would when before I moved down here to Paso Robles, I would never dream of putting these varieties together uh, from my experiences in other places. I mean, I would just. I'd, I'd expect to get this uh, astringent, very insipid wine. Um, but uh, what I find is these varieties that are very astringent and tannic um, grow exceptionally well in our climate here in Paso Robles and from our uh, one of five estate vineyards. Um, uh, we have such a long growing season uh, here in pa Paso. We're a much further south in latitude, and that's something you got to note where we are. If, you, if you're, Bordeaux is probably on a very similar latitude as up in Washington State, so very short growing season. Um, uh, you know, uh, if they have a few cool incremental days during the growing season, there's not that many other uh, days to make up for that. So sometimes they're, they're, uh, the tannin profiles don't quite develop and get as, as rich and round. Uh, so the tannins can be a little tighter, a little bit more astringent um, at the time of harvest. Whereas what we see here uh, in this region, uh, Paso Robles, uh, more south in latitude, much longer growing season. We get some warm temperatures during the day that um, uh, that help uh, soften the tannin textures, and then some cool nighttime temperatures that keep the nice acidity in. But a very long growing season. So at the time of picking. Um, you get not only this rich, ripe, bold, expressive fruit tone of the variety, but you also get this just roundness of tannin where they're smooth and silky and, and, um, and you get some nice, even layered textures. You get a lot of, um, uh, uh, a lot of richness in the glass, but you don't get that, um, that astringent dry tannin overhang. Yeah. 
Uh, this is this is this is great. I tell you the when I'm looking at this, the the eye, the color is gorgeous. I mean, this is a beautiful. Yes. But that's 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 the petite Verdot and the petite Syrah coming out of it. Yeah. 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 Now now petite Verdot and petite Syrah, they're both known for very um, very deep color, very dark color. I would say the petite Syrah tends to have more of these kind of deep opaque purple hues to them never never an issue with color with petite Syrah. again the the um and just typically has this dark fruit flavor this dark berry fruit tone uh the only issue with petite Syrah, why some people uh, shy away from it is sometimes the tannins can be too aggressive but not here here the petite Syrah gives this gets this really um creamy texture um uh, of tannin to it I uh, the the petite verdot has a different tannin profile. Um it it adds a little bit more structure, maybe not quite as creamy, but you get that backbone. Uh and and that's typically why petite verdot is used in a blend. It has this nice backbone, it has good color on its own, more of a reddish uh tone of color, uh, less of the purple than what you see in the the petite syrah, but but definitely good in color and just uh this rich powerful structure that uh, is very age-worthy tannins for laying down. So, and what the Petite Syrah does, that 20% of Petite Syrah just adds an element of this creaminess that layers over that structure and just, uh, so you get this this really rich structure, but you get this kind of layered creamy tannin uh, blended on top of it. So that's, I, I think the blend of the two actually works in this case, um, uh, which is why we kind of sought to to make this an individual um, uh, selection for the year. Definitely. Well, I uh, I'm so looking forward to going through uh, going through the, the, the you know the, the process here with uh, getting ready to publish your your interview soon because. Everyone's going to absolutely enjoy when they get their hands on on your wines and enjoy the the same experience and the tasting and the flavors and just just the aromas. Everything. I mean, you've done such a fantastic job with your wines. I, I again, not going to get into the new bottle experience review and rating, um, but it's out of this world. Everybody listening. And in fact, I was I was at the website earlier today when I was doing some research, uh, just kind of final prepping. I like how you guys have this whole recipe section on it, and just one for those that are uh, going to listen and want to make a nice dinner tonight. They, you know, uh, Kevin and the team have this this recipe section on uh, vinorobles.com. Grilled beef tenderloin with uh, gorgonzola butter, rosemary potatoes, and asparagus goes well with the the wine that we're actually talking about here today on the show, the uh, 2012 signature. And uh, I don't know. Have you tried that recipe yet yourself, Kevin? Or I have. I I have. It it is. uh, (laughs) It's so. uh, It's so lush. There's that nice creaminess that kind of comes in, and it just with this with a structured wine like this, um, it just it's uh, it's like uh, you know, as a kid, I used to have this chocolate chip cookie milk sort of combination. You never wanted. uh, you always wanted to find the right balance. If you ended up with uh, too much cooking and not enough milk, then you know you you, you you weren't quite satisfied. You weren't quite balanced. It's the same thing here. You're going to want to have one bite of this, and you're going to buy. You'll probably go through a whole bottle of uh, this wine. <laughs> it will work. <laughs> oh, 
you know, it's what I, it, just, I'm just reading, I was reviewing the, uh, the overall just recipe and I was like, oh my gosh, no, I'm super starving here now. But, um, you know, another thing, you know, I was looking at where to buy the wines and, you know, being located and headquartered here for Uncorked Monthly, uh, we're in Michigan. And mm-hmm. so I just obviously went to that. You guys have actually are located, uh, I mean, you guys have Ann Arbor, Birmingham. Birmingham is 10 minutes from where my office is, you know, sits at. Um, but for those of you that are listening to the, um, you know, Ann Arbor, Birmingham, Detroit, East Lansing, Ferndale, Lake Orion, Royal Oak, Traverse City, Lake White Lake. I mean, all the cities, there's a really good sample of locations that you can go out and buy uh, Kevin's uh, wine here uh, from Vino Robles and in the state of Michigan. And so, of course, Kevin, up, up on the website, once we publish, we'll, we'll have all these great URLs ready and accessible for the world to click on. I want you to talk real quick about the, um, you know, the, the not only the, where you can buy the wines, but just, you know, the, the club, right, where people can actually enjoy the different membership opportunities to join up on your signature wine club. Yeah, no, they're, um, the, you know, the wine club, there is no, uh, there is no fee for a sign up. Uh, there's various structured uh, structures for the wine club, depending on what, um, what you feel comfortable with. Um, it, uh, gives you a chance to try, uh, you know, certain wine items that you might find, um, some you might find locally, uh, you know, there in Michigan. Some we tend to just do a couple hundred specialty uh, cases of certain products that may not make it out that far on a regular basis. So we kind of keep them around the tasting room just uh, for wine club only. Um, right. You know, I would encourage you, there's there's certain things that we do, like uh, we do do uh, a petit verdot, um, uh, just varietal uh, in and of itself, something you don't see out there uh, on its own quite a bit as a vari- standing varietal, but uh, for reasons I mentioned earlier, it, it just works here in Paso. Um, so you'll, there's some there's some uh, there's some neat things that we uh, that we think do well. They may not be quite ready for prime time out there that people haven't discovered but I think there's some uh, unique diamonds and treasures that you would find uh, from the wine club excellent I know uh, I, what I'll do is I'll make sure that on our on, on the featured interview uh, in, in the respective section that we'll cover this we'll, we'll put all this information it links to the respective pages that I've been bringing up here today um, but uh, Kevin, really want to thank you for your time. You're you're such an inspiring person, winemaker with such an amazing background. Our audience is going to just absolutely love this. Um, if, if you have any additional final thoughts, you know, please please share them with me now. And love to no, maybe I, get some last, well, last words here. Yeah, well, I hope everybody gets a chance. To obviously, try our wines, and um, if you like them, I'm looking to. Uh, we own our estate vineyards. Uh, I'm out there all the time, uh, working with them. I, I see every block that we pick before we pick them. We make the wine out. We're not buying wine from another winery, putting it in the bottle. It's it's all from the ground up. Uh, you know, you need to, uh, I, I think you really not need to be out there if you want consistency of your product, uh, working with the vineyard, controlling your grape sourcing, and just managing that uh, appropriately to create a good, solid, consistent product. 
Um, so we're looking to kind of continue this uh, year in, year out. Um, but uh, I would look for the, the, the rich, bold, expressive uh, fruit that um, is the terroir that I find here in Paso Robles and I see in our estate vineyard. And just the reds, just hopefully you find uh, on them what I'm, uh, my goal is to achieve a wine of balance where you find this richness of texture, uh, but it's not too astringent or dry, that it's very balanced, yeah, that you can consume it now, and these wines still will age for, uh, for a period of time if you can hang on to them in the cellar. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Kevin absolute uh, pleasure to be with you here today on UncorkMonthly.com. Thanks for all of your time. Uh, yeah, thank you again, Mark. It was a pleasure uh, uh, talking to you and, and uh, thank you. hope to talk to you again in the near future. Cheers to my friend. Okay, cheers, buddy. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another Uncork Monthly featured interview where we will share great winemaker stories.